Alright guys, today I want to do an episode about uh, health and fitness. We might not get to the fitness part today. Um, what brought this on was there was a local screening of a new documentary um, at the University of Florida in the plant science department. It is about GMO food. And so this was put on. Uh, normally I have problems with documentaries about nutrition. And it's because the ones that I have seen, they're often, um, I think, full of misinformation or claims that aren't quite fully, you know, just overemphasized claims. Anyway, so I, went, I wanted to go to this one because it was UF scientists promoting it and it was open to the public. And I went and I did a little poll um, of the people around me while I was there. I asked them, hey guys, do you think this is going to be pro-GMO or anti-GMO food? And not surprisingly to me, most people thought it was going to be anti-GMO. And the point of this podcast isn't going to be to convince you to like or dislike GMO, but I told the people sitting next to me, you know, I have a feeling this is going to be pro-GMO. And they said, really? And I said, yeah, because to my knowledge, the scientific community is pretty positive on the use of GMOs. And also, uh, the documentary is narrated by Neil deGrasse Tyson, and it also has Bill Nye in it. And in my experience, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye are not going to say things in direct opposition to the scientific community, be it on global warming, on space, etc. And so it started out, and what they started with was uh, the Hawaiian papaya, which I think is the first commercial use of a genetically engineered organism. And so just a little background on GMO. Um, we've been changing the DNA, DNA, so to speak, of plants for thousands of years. Uh, anytime you crossbreed species or breed for certain traits, you're genetically modifying. The new tactic is when they use uh, equipment to change uh, the um, basically with like a tiny syringe, a cellular gun, to change the DNA of an organism, organism to uh, insert certain sequences. So anyway, the first time that this, they call that genetic engineering, and the first time that was used commercially was apparently the Hawaiian papaya. And um, they showed the city commission in Hawaii kicking it out, and they showed, uh, well, not scientists, they showed speakers talking about how bad these foods could be and how they're associated with all this disease. And so I said, "Uh Oh, I might end up being proven wrong. But then of course the documentary goes, but were they correct? And they showed that some of the people that were speaking out in favor of this papaya were actually scientists at the university of Hawaii. And so they went to the people that actually invented the, the GMO, at least the strain of Hawaiian papaya that's being used, and they showed how it was being decimated by some pest. And only with this, I mean, the food would be extinct practically if it were not for this technique. And so not only did it save this plant species, um, because it was that bad of a, of a pest. I forget if it was a disease or an animal. I think it was a disease. But it also saved the livelihood of tons of Hawaiian papaya farmers. They went on to talk about how there is very little evidence among the scientific community that GMO 
is bad for people and how do they measure that what they use are peer-reviewed university based academic papers um, to to show if there's been harm and this is a big thing I harp on I only try, I try to only get information from sources that cite at least academic sources, university science. It's actually sometimes difficult to figure out if a paper is peer-reviewed, apparently. Sometimes it'll say it on the um, PubMed entry, sometimes it won't. But um, at the very least, I want to know that university, Western university scientists, because Chinese universities have a bad reputation still, unfortunately, but Western university scientists have vetted something. And that does not mean, I think, that if they publish it, that it's true. There are lots of examples. I mean, the history of science is that first we think one thing and then we find evidence or we create experiments that begin to prove that that isn't true. So it doesn't mean that what we're learning today is the absolute truth, whatever that means. And I'm aware of times that university science has been, um, you know, uh, faked or uh, I've even heard of a recent um experiment where people submitted a fake paper that had all sorts of clues in it like names of fictional characters as the scientists or the subjects and it actually passed peer review in you know not the top journals but these were journals on like with names like Australian Journal of Epidemiology uh you know and I'm not picking on anyone but it it wasn't um something really esoteric but anyway so, but the point is, uh, this is the way I've heard it told. Um, well, the first, the first criticism I hear of university science is, and actually somebody in the crowd told this to me, oh, well, you can't trust those guys. They're in the pocket of big agriculture, or big pharma. So I asked that. There was a panel after this uh, documentary, and I asked that question of the scientists, and I said, um, what do you say to people that say that you guys are just in the pocket of big corporations because they fund your research. And the first thing they said was, well, you know, UF is a public uh, research university, a land-grant-based institution, and as such, only 3% of their research budget comes from private companies. Now, that's not proof in and of itself they're not in someone's pocket because maybe, you know, a disproportionate percentage of GMO studies are paid for by companies. I haven't researched that far. But the point is... It seems like the bulk of at least public university research, if what they're saying is correct, is by law state-funded. And then the second reason I trust, or at least I trust university science more, is something that my friend who's a physicist, a UF-trained physicist, and actually he did his undergrad at Princeton, he did his PhD at Stanford, and then he did postdocs work in the UF physics department. So a pretty educated guy, and he said this, ideally science is self-correcting. And the way that that occurs is, the best way that you can make a name for yourself as a scientist is by disproving established research and by showing it in experiments and by convincing everyone so the quickest way if somebody is doing something inherently false um the there are incentives to debunk it and one of the reasons is that these scientists care about their reputation um they want to be known as serious scientists at least a lot of them do it because they want to be respected by their peers i mean my friend i asked him one time why are you a scientist and he said you know i can talk about 
um, helping the world and solving problems. But if I'm honest, I just wanted to make a name for myself. I really think of a legacy. I want to be remembered as a great scientist. And I've actually heard that from at least two scientists now. But even if there's not all of them, there are a significant amount of them that, that think that way. And then finally, you know, if I didn't have some benchmark as to, or criteria as to which studies I'm going to even read, I would have to believe every article that friends send me on the internet about nutrition, science, health, and there's just too much of it. I have to have some type of filter. So for me, choosing university-based science, and I've, I know there's reproducibility problems. That's another thing I'm aware of. Um, Psychology was recently criticized because when people have repeated experiments using the same methods as other psychologists, they've found that something like only 50% of science uh, psychology experiments produce the same results. But it's not only psychology that has reproducibility problems, even some of the hard sciences do. But again, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, I would be paralyzed reading every article people sent me no matter how um, outlandish something might appear because until you look at those methods you don't really know how they're getting the result so I choose to first start with those those university articles anyway and so oh this is something I, I wanted to use this to lead into nutrition one of the reasons that I don't like to watch nutrition documentaries is that they're usually not made by nutritionists and in fact if you ask university trained nutritionists to vet things that you've heard in a nutrition documentary, you're probably going to hear them say things that are contrary or at least are, are more precise and different. Um, and I'll try to give you some examples uh, in, in a minute. But I also want to mention nutrition books are the same way. Some of the most popular nutrition books that I've heard of are not written by nutritionists. So the book Wheat Belly is written by Gary Tobbs, who's a journalist and a physicist by training. And I'm sorry, but if you want to learn about nutrition, go to nutritionists, go to the source. Don't go to a physicist. He may be a smart guy, but they're not going to be as steeped in sort of the fundamentals and the community generally. And it doesn't mean everything in that book is wrong. I, I, and it doesn't mean those diets can't work. It just means I hear enough things that phys nutritionists I know discount or discredit that I'm more selective with my sources. Um, but one more thing on that GMO documentary I saw, and again, I chose to see this because this was scientists putting this on. This was the plant science department at UF. But afterwards, they did a poll, and they talked about how there's no peer-reviewed research um, showing that GMO hurts people, that many of the so-called smoking gun studies on GMO can't be repeated the studies about things like mice catching cancer, those are they've used mice in those studies that uh, that are actually bred to, to to be prone to cancer. Um, things that talk about glyphosate, so glyphosate is toxic, but the toxicity level is the same as things like sugar and water. So it's a low toxicity level, and so the question is, do they use more of it? Yes, they do use more of it, but glyphosate allows them to use fewer pesticides that often have higher toxicity levels. So 
at this point, I'm I'm very comfortable. The other thing I think they said in this documentary is there's no commercially available GMO uh, cereal crops and maybe other crops. Yes, cereals, I think. A wheat. It was at least wheat. There's no GMO wheat on the stands in the U.S. And it might have been other crops too. There's only things like specialty crops and in foreign places where they've been subject to pathogens or they just need it in order to, for harsh conditions, what have you. But don't quote me on that. The food documentary was called, the GMO documentary was called Food Evolution. Again, and my thing with GMO is this. I'm going to be receptive to people proving it wrong but I'm still probably going to have that benchmark of university science, guys. So I'm going to wait for someone like that, uh, you know, and for all the reasons I just outlined. And then I guess I'll talk a little about nutrition now. Another problem I have with nutrition, and I'll go into what I think soon. I just want to talk about what this documentary made me think of. Um, We don't have good definitions for things. So like, how do you define a healthy food? If I ask 10 people, I feel like I might get 10 different answers. You know, some people might say, oh, it's got nutrients in it. Well, um, nutrients, how many of those nutrients do you actually need? Have you already had enough of those nutrients on a particular day? Somebody else might say, so does it really matter if you get more? Somebody else might say, um, well, a nutritious food is one that doesn't hurt you. But you know what? The poison is in the dose. Like um, most uh, substances, poisons are rated for the amount you have to take. Toxicity levels are basically the amount you have to take before it, before it kills you, before it's lethal. Um, there's a lot of things that are poisonous. In, they're only poisonous in large doses. So anyway, and, and I know you're not probably going to have a hard time killing yourself with apples. But, you know, even water, there's an amount you can get too much of. And then even the word health. Um, there's not a good definition of health that I can find. If I again, my sense is if I ask 10 people, I'm going to get 10 answers or 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 you know, at least a few and they may differ in fundamental ways. Um answers that I looked up uh, so like the WHO, the world, if you go to the wiki page for the word health, they're going to have the WHO definition and it just means well-being and it means a state of well-being in both your physical and social well-being. And to my knowledge, doctors use this kind of fuzzy term of well-being. In other words, functioning. Um, and to some degree, um, I, I understand why it's hard to have a good definition of the word health because ultimately the end state of all living things is death. So, you know, an elderly person can be healthy, but are they as healthy as they were when they were young? Um, in many ways, they are not. Um, the, you know, their DNA has, may have more errors. It has more errors in it. Their, their um, joints may be more stiff. There's all we know what happens, but you, so you get where I'm going with that. Um, for me, what health is is longevity. So, what types of habits and foods you eat, and um, maybe even mindsets or uh, things you do outside of uh, physical activity can help you live longer. And so, just from the research I'm exposed to. Um, Keeping a low body weight or as low as possible seems to be the biggest thing you can do in order to extend your longevity. Why do I say that? Well, a lot of people don't know. People, There's this term bandied about called metabolic disease. If somebody's using the word metabolic disease, I know they're a quack. 
And the way that I know that is you don't get so-called metabolic disease, things like blood sugar abnormalities, unless you're fat. And I don't mean never, but the majority of diabetics are clinically obese. It's something like 80%. So you can avoid 80% of these problems just by monitoring your body weight. The tweaking your food so you're not spiking your blood sugar, you're, you know, you're having wheat bread instead of white or whatever the trick someone is recommending, maybe that helps you with the remaining 20% of problems or the, it's actually the way to think of it is the remaining 20% of people who are prone to blood sugar problems even though they're not obese. And those are, diabetes is actually, it's not genetic, it's epigenetic. It corresponds, there's no diabetes gene that I'm aware of. It corresponds to changes in your genes. And so, um, so it's, uh, it's, it's somewhat complex, but my point is um, there are people who are predisposed to get diabetes even when they don't get fat. But that's not most of us. And I think you probably know if you're one of those individuals, you just like you probably know if you're an individual who has high cholesterol in your family or high blood pressure in your family, heart problems in your family. Also, all of those problems can be greatly reduced if you monitor your, your weight. Here's another thing. So you say, well, does the weight really matter? Shouldn't it matter what the weight is composed of? Like more fat versus more muscle? And then you hear that term body composition, which is the ratio of fat to muscle that people are talking about. Well, listen, if I hear somebody using the term body composition, I also know they're a quack, in my opinion. Because anybody who has worked out for a long time will tell you it is incredibly hard to build muscle. By contrast, it's incredibly easy to to gain 5, 10, 50 pounds. Now, it's also going to be much easier to lose that many pounds. You're going to have an easier time losing 5 pounds than you're going to than a fat than you are going to have gaining 5 pounds of muscle. Professional bodybuilders, even people on drugs, you can find interviews of them online. Mr. Olympias, they talk about how they only expect to gain two, three, four pounds of muscle a year. And these people are on the largest doses of drugs you've ever seen. And here's another way to think about it. I have a boss who talks about this. Um, so I have, I do social media management. Um, some of my main clients are in health and fitness. And um, two of my clients, one is a nutrition PhD and one is a, was a kinesiology post, uh, grad researcher or doing doctoral research at, um, at university of Florida or training rather. And, um, one of the things, this is the way the nutritionist put it. He said, it comes down to this. If all it took to gain muscle was to eat tons of protein and bench a lot, we would all weigh 400 pounds. And I, I don't have, I mean, I, I don't know how much I have to harp on this because I think most guys who are drug free know this, that you go to the gym every day or every week for years and people don't look that much different after, even after years, even the biggest guy in the gym. And the reason is there's two phases of muscle growth in humans. There's something called juvenile muscle growth and then adult muscle growth and Juvenile muscle growth, you can guess what it is, but it's those that first big spurt of muscle growth that you get. You'll notice it more on men because I think men gain more. But when you first start working out, it's very easy to gain weight. And people will often say they gain 10 or 20 pounds uh, very quickly. 
And I had a guy one time telling me, he was probably like 23, he was saying, yeah, man, no, it's not hard to gain muscle. I tell you, I gained like 10 or 20 pounds uh, when I was 21 in one year. Yeah. First of all, this guy was skinny even, even after he'd gained all that weight. He was still kind of a, not scrawny, but he was a very thin guy. And so he was probably even more, uh, you know, scrawny looking before that. So that was his, it, and so afterwards, everybody, you plateau. I think we can all accept there's a point of diminishing returns, and it comes well before most guys would want. It comes before we look like He-Man. And it happens for women even before that. So long story short, um, and, he, you know, it's hard to gain muscle. So body composition, let's talk about weight loss and fat gain. Those are the only two terms that I that I think of when I think about controlling your weight. Here's another thing too. When people say things like, oh yeah, it's easy to gain 10 or 20 pounds of muscle. Was it, was it but was it really muscle? Because here's the thing, all these guys go on bulking diets and it just happened to a friend of mine. So like when you're, if, especially if you're already lean, five, those first five or 10 pounds, they look good or they can look good if you, if your body, you know, in men, fat is pretty, it it can be pretty distributed. It's not in certain, you know, just one or two areas. And so, you know, some of that goes into your arms, it goes into your pecs, it goes into your back, it goes into your legs. So it can, it, depending on the guy, it can look really good. And it usually does. You usually, I mean, how many times do we not notice we've gained five pounds because we're looking at ourselves every day. So, and sure enough, so my friend, and he's doing a great job. He's taking very careful measurements of his weight gain. He's trying to gain muscle. He himself is lean, but he gained 10 or 20 pounds of muscle in a month, but he was measuring it. It's also how you measure. He was measuring it with calipers. So then he went and he had a bod pod uh, test. And I think that combines, um, basically water volume tests to see how much water you displace along with electrical impedance tests. Cause I think depending on the amount of fat you have, your body will resist a certain amount of electricity. He found out that the calipers, he thought he'd gained like 20 pounds of muscle. He found out he'd only gained 10 and the rest was fat. So the, the calipers were off by 10 pounds. Here's another word that if somebody uses it, 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 it alarms go off and it tells me something. Uh, nutrition, believe it or not. So the, the, the guy I work for is a nutrition PhD. You'll rarely ever hear them say, him say that word. The only people I hear saying the word nutrition are people on the internet, personal trainers, and physical therapists. And here's why I think that is. No one is malnourished. I'm being, I'm trying to, I'm being controversial. In the first world, hospitalizations for malnourishment are extremely rare. In other words, somebody being so mal, missing a certain nutrient so much they have a symptom is super rare. And the reason for this is that our foods are fortified. So if you eat any commercial wheat products, even if you don't, particularly wheat, but there's, I'm sure there's other cereals or grain products too. I think even by law in the US, they add vitamins and they add as much or more than your multivitamin. And guess what? It's better absorbed because some of these nutrients are better absorbed attached to carbs, but they add and they add specifically the nutrients that 
are prone that, that that if they're missing they cause the worst disorders so they add things like b12 deficiency is really it causes a neurological disorder that's really bad so all the wheat products in the u.s are laced with it even if it doesn't say it on the packaging and i know this for a fact because i actually i like cheese it and i wanted to know i used cheese it as a test and i tweeted to them could you guys tell me the vitamins beyond the ones on your label that may or may not be contained in your product and they sent me a list and it has b12 zinc b6 b2 b1 and i think i'm not sure i have i should have looked it up but i think they're required by at least u.s law and i'm sure in canada and other first world nations and that's great so we don't have to worry about these major health uh, nutrient deficiencies and that's not to say that there aren't other nutrient deficiencies that aren't that are more mild that aren't as dangerous but so meat supplies even if you're not eating vegetables meat will help supply your body with some of the other ones because the animals tissues so like meat even contains a little bit of vitamin c and if you're eating with variety you're going to get some of those nutrients you're not going to get the optimal but you know what we don't actually know this is another dirty secret nutritionists don't actually know how much nutrients you need over time to to, to the optimal amount i'm sorry i'm uh they don't know the optimal amount, nor do they know the minimum amount because it varies based on the person, the activity level, the environment. There are nutrients in the groundwater. And depending where you live, you get a lot more. I actually found out that uh, the, the southeast is actually kind of poor, especially Florida, I guess, probably because lime rock and the aquifer comes in from the ocean, etc. But um, we, we lack some of the... Um, minerals that would normally be in our water like selenium and selenium zinc um manganese i think we also lack um it doesn't mean we have none and it doesn't mean i'm telling you to supplement those um maybe you just want to take a multivitamin if you're worried about, and that's the other thing it's so easy to take a multivitamin and no you won't absorb all of it but you don't need to so the here's an, here's something i learned if you ever look at the back of a the ingredients list on food or of a multivitamin, you're going to find out there's a percent daily daily value, and that is the percent. Um, it comes from these guiding documents that were made by the U.S. and Canadian um, scientific communities, and they're called daily recommended intakes. Um, and what those are based on, they're actually sometimes depending on the nutrient based on the lowest level of what's called the standards of evidence pyramid and the standards of evidence pyramid is a tool in science for classifying the strength of certain types of evidence and the lowest pyramid is known as clinical data or expert opinion and clinical data could be you know you don't know how large that sample size is it might not be statistically significant and expert opinion i can already tell you you know expert according to whom usually it's going to have been in university scientists which again i like but it doesn't mean they're foolproof as i said earlier and the other thing is that just means the amount so let's say you're getting 100 percent of c i may i may uh, misstate this but that just means that if you have 100% it means you are two standard deviations out from the norm not not worth of people who won't die if they get that amount due to that nutrient in other words people who receive this much C only 2.5% of them will are are like another thing and this goes back to body weight with a lot of these ketogenic diets uh, the diet you may not be losing fat I'm not saying you're losing muscle, but there's something else you lose when you diet, which is water. 
And in particular, when you cut carbs, you're going to lose a lot of water weight. You're going to lose more water weight than if you were to say cut protein. And here's why. Um, Carbs attach to three times their weight in water in the body. So when you um, cut carbs, your body will have less of those immediately to store and it will have to use the carbs that it's storing in your muscles. It first stores them in your liver and then your muscles, I believe. And when it does that, it's also using up the water and it's excreting the water. Um, I can't remember if it's excreting it or using it. Um, but uh, so my point is, and if you, if, you, if you don't believe that, just try this. Cut your carbs for one night. Just for dinner one night, have no carbs with a meal. You will find that at least I've done this experiment or try it for a day. If you do it for a day, if you cut carbs for a day, I know you will lose at least a couple pounds. You did not lose two pounds of fat. And if you doubt that, just go back to carbs for one day. That water weight will be back by the end of the day. Um, and you did not gain back two pounds of fat because it takes 3,500 calories to, in excess to add or lose a pound of fat. So um, that is one of the things that makes people swear by these diets. Uh, another thing with, uh, what is the diet? Uh, gluten-free diets. Um, it does appear that, well, of course, there are people who are actually gluten sensitive and it makes their life very difficult because they can't even have it touch the foods that they're, that they like to eat. And so I have a lot of sympathy for those people. I think I've heard a term that it's like 6% of the population. Now I have heard that like maybe 20% of, of us are sensitive to gluten and not just gluten, other proteins in wheat. However, because apparently there's, I think there's like eight proteins in wheat. Maybe it's a lot more than that. And there's might be a few that we're sensitive to. However, we're just less sensitive than other people. And so people say, oh, um, you know, I lost so much weight on, I've actually heard people say I lost so much weight on gluten-free. Again, it goes back to that water. Um, And part of that water is inflammation. So if gluten really doesn't sit well with them, part of the reason that they're losing water might be they're losing water weight due to inflammation, which was brought on by an allergic response to the wheat. So it's possible, but it's not extra fat loss, which is something I think I've actually heard from people. But by all means, if it helps you do it. And so that's what I was getting to. How do you know what you should do? You should do well, you should do what helps you keep your body weight down. And um, if you ask a nutritionist, they're going to give you two pieces of advice. They're going to say, eat with variety. That's what I hear the most. I've asked a few nutritionists now. They're taught in school, eating with variety will help you avoid those nutritional deficiencies. And they're also going to say, avoid, uh, they're going to say, monitor your calories. They're going to, it's energy in versus energy out. And yes, I know that there, there may be some imprecision with calories as a weight loss tool. And it may be that a calorie is not a calorie. And what that comes from apparently is, depending where you get your calories from, be it protein, carbs, or fat, your body may burn those calories more or less efficiently. However, the effect appears to not be that great. At least in studies I've been exposed to, the effect of, say, getting calories from protein, it appears you can eat like 10% more calories of protein before you gain any weight. 
So that means like on a 2000 calorie diet, you can eat 200 more calories of protein, which is great, but you still can't eat like a king. And um, it is a benefit. So you should do it if it helps you. But it's not like, oh, just cut carbs and now you'll lose twice as much fat, bro. It's, it's not quite like that. You're going to lose some water. It helps you look good. I think it's a great trick if you're trying to go to an event um, or if you just want to start making progress quickly, you can see in the mirror in your weight loss, cut some carbs for an evening. You'll even see it in an evening. Going back to longevity and how it relates to these diets, um, one thing you might want to consider with these high meat diets, I don't think it's going to give you heart disease because heart disease apparently is more, it's not so correlated with cholesterol. It's much more correlated with what's called atherosclerosis, sclerosis, which is, um, I think it's scarring of the arteries that's caused by inflammation of the arteries. And as I said, well, I guess I didn't say it. Inflammation of the arteries is also largely caused by obesity. Obesity is a main cause of inflammation in the body. Um, And I actually don't understand why. I know that um, fatty tissue releases or encourages the release of hormones. It's known as an endocrine tissue. And those hormones may be causing an immune response in the body. Um, but by losing weight, you can lose that inflammation. You're going to be less prone to heart disease and you can lose weight on high protein diets as many people have. So you can probably improve your heart condition eating high protein. The one reservation I have about the high meat beyond the cost and also preparation time if you have to go home to cook all of that, um, is that there may, and I say may be a correlation with cancer and, um, I don't think it's as strong as the vegans say, because again, cancer is also correlated with obesity. Uh, I heard it, this is a good, so you can look that up. Apparently that's true that obese people are more prone to cancer. Um, Also athletes are less prone to cancer. Maybe it's because they weigh weigh less. uh, Aerobic athletes in particular, um, for probably a host of reasons. But uh, yeah, so a cool, Um, analogy I heard. So you've probably never heard of heart cancer. And it is indeed, apparently it's the rarest form of cancer. And apparently the reason is why is uh, the heart is the leanest tissue in the body and muscle tissue or organ tissue and cancer likes fat. And I don't I think it probably has to do with the endocrine. Endocrine means hormones and hormones are chemical signals. And what a lot of those chemical signals in the body do, they're growth signals. So you have growth signals going around, that's really bad. Well, meat, um, protein, when you get protein from meat, it increases a growth signal in the body, a metabolic pathway known as mTOR or mammalian target of rapamycin, and I won't get into what that means, it's associated with muscle building, sure. So protein can be a useful tool up to a certain amount to build muscle, but it's also one of the two main metabolic pathways in cancer growth. And you probably hear about how um, cancer is associated with sugar. Apparently, um, oncologists, cancer doctors, do tell their patients to avoid high sugar diets. However, cell walls, I believe they're made up of fat, but they're also made up of protein. I think 40% of the energy a, a, um, 
of the uh, of the energy that cancer needs is from protein. I have some articles on that, but cancer also has a large need for protein. I know that to create new cells. So and 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 that's even separate from activating this mTOR pathway. Now this goes all the way back to who should you trust and what science. Um, the best scientists I know are skeptical. They're very cautious about what they say. They try to be very careful and they, they have a hard time saying things definitively, which can be a little frustrating. But the nutrition PhD um, that I work for and that I really like and I respect him because I think he is a skeptical scientist, he says this. He doesn't say, he himself is a vegan, recently became vegan, but he doesn't say meat causes cancer. He'll say something like this. It's getting harder and harder to find studies that show that high meat intakes prolong life or are associated with low cancer rates. He'll say something like that. In other words, he doesn't have a smoking gun that shows meat causes cancer. He doesn't know for sure, but it's probably worth moderating the intake. And the research is starting to come down on the side that cancer meat may be involved in cancer. But that's, that's high intakes of meat. Moderate meat intake, it's much harder to find a correlation. So guys, I talked a lot today. I think this is one of my longer podcasts and I appreciate you listening. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up because I'm probably going to do a fitness podcast separate. And so we've talked about what you put in your body and I just think, you know, not that you should live on Twinkies, but if there's a diet that helps you keep your body weight down, um, you should probably uh, try to stick to that diet as long as you're getting some reasonable amount of variety. You know, vegetables don't have that many calories. They don't have a lot of energy in them or bad carbs or whatever fitness philosophy you subscribe to. Multivitamins, you know, they probably won't hurt you. If you're taking, I recommend you take ones with 100% RDA so you're not getting too much because some of these uh, vitamins have a thousand percent of what you need on a daily basis. And that's not actually, you know, they may help you with athletic performance, but most of us aren't athletes. And in some cases, they're actually correlated with cancer if you get too many. So I probably don't think you should take, um, you know, one that's really high in stuff. So look at the back and look that it has 100% or less of given nutrients. I think in general, it does depend on the nutrient, but I think in general, multivitamins are better absorbed uh, when taken with meals. Um, so you, you may want to do that. I actually take one every other day um, because, again, like that 100% is based on getting, making, like this is the amount that we know that um, most people won't get sick on, but I am not, you know, I, I am not a super active person, you know, I'm not working a coal mine and nor am I an underactive person. So I just kind of want it in the middle and I can't find a, a vitamin that has 50% of everything. And this is just guesswork, but you know what? The nutrition PhD I know, he doesn't even take one or he takes it when he remembers to because he doesn't even, he's not even convinced you need one and there's no scientific basis to say you need one. I, I, there's no scientific basis to say they cure disease. Um, but I do think that if you just want a little insurance to getting extra nutrients, they probably help. Um, so we'll do a fitness episode, um, and good luck on, uh, you know, I think eating in balance, eating in moderation, those old sayings are probably the wisest information that we have. Uh, so thanks guys. uh, The way my boss puts it is eat like an adult. 
most of the time. You can splurge some of the time. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with the fitness podcast eventually. Thanks a lot. Bye.